the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Moses was equally unready to lead as they were unready to be led. Because you called us as your own. You brought us to your phone. God had to deal with his pride still. Don't they know I'm the deliverer? We long for you alone. Moses had to learn to submit to God. That God was Israel's deliverer and that his job was to be God's instrument to point them to the Lord. Hello and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Last time in Exodus chapter 2, we saw that the Egyptian pharaoh was trying to shrink the growing population of the Israelites. He devised a plan to have all the male children under the age of three to be killed. One couple saved their baby by putting him in a box that floated to Pharaoh's daughter, where she would now raise the boy up. This is the account of Moses. Here we pick up at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Last week we saw how Moses' parents, they weren't dismayed by the circumstances around them. They, they looked up and they saw an omnipotent God who loved them. And by doing that, they, they found the strength to trust God with their precious child. And, and as we saw, God came through, right? He, he guided the, that little ark into Pharaoh's daughter's sight, and, and now he, he's growing up in, in the palace as a free man. And, you know, while we need to look up instead of giving in to fear, we must also look up instead of taking matters into our own hands. And while Moses' parents instilled him with the knowledge of the one true God, we see that when he makes his decision to break from Egypt, to break from his mother, from Pharaoh's daughter, and would not be called her son anymore, and he goes to be with his people, all that was instructed, I think, built in by his parents. While that's true, Moses, he still had to learn the lesson of trusting God's ways instead of his plans, doing it his way. And so as we get to chapter two, we're going to see Moses fail in this area. He will do things his way. He will fail and fail poorly. And as a result, he will go back to the school of hard knocks for 40 years. So uh, with that in mind, let's dig into chapter two. I want to actually go to Hebrews chapter 11 first, because there is a gap between Exodus 2.10 and Exodus 2.11 of at least 20 years. And Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 explains, and it kind of sets it up for what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 2. So let's go to Hebrews 11 and verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now we talked about how that coming to years was a much younger time. This was probably him between the age of 15 and 20. So there there came a choice very early on in Moses' life when he became a man in that society, when he chose to no longer be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to no longer be there and to be the positions that she was probably propping him up for that he didn't want that. But rather, verse 25 says, what did he do instead? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had 
respect or he was looking to the recompense of the reward. So I remember reading that and I'm thinking, when did, when was Moses afflicted with God's people? Now I've seen the 10 commandments and I know, you know, that you know, they put him in the mud pits and whatever, and he's getting whipped and stuff like there. But that That's not accurate. I don't see that in scripture ever taking place. And so this, I looked up this word affliction and it has less to do with suffering, slavery, or persecution than it has to do with being despised or looked down on by others. In fact, you'll find this word frequently in the same sentence where you'll find someone talk about those who are enslaved and they'll use this word to refer to those who are just looked down on. So Moses was never enslaved with his own people, but he was looked down on or despised. Now, where does that, where does that come from? Because Acts 7 says he was mighty in word and deed amongst the Egyptians. Well, turn to Acts 7 with me. And verse 25, I think, gives us a better idea of what Moses did. After Moses does what he does in Exodus 2.11, Acts 7.25 gives us commentary on why he murdered the Egyptian and why he went out and tried to break up the fight between two Hebrews the next day. Verse 25 says... For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they did not understand. So while we don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't give us the nuts and bolts of it, I believe with all my heart that Moses left the royal court. I think that's what it means when he says he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter's son, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I believe at that age, when he was between 15 and 20, at some point in time, he left the royal court. And I believe he moved up north to the area of Goshen. That's where it says he chose affliction. I think that's why he was looked down on. I think that's why he was despised. You had everything in front of you, Moses. You had all the education, all the tools, and you turned it all down. For it says that he esteemed the riches of Christ better than all of those things. See, I don't think Hebrews eleven twenty six makes sense unless he turns down all those riches and he goes somewhere else. So if that's true, which I believe it is, there's a huge chunk of time between this move and then verse 11 of Acts 2, uh, I'm sorry, of Exodus 2. That's a long time. If he's between 15 and 20 and Exodus 2, 11 occurs when he's 40 years old, That's at least 20 years of him being away from the royal court and waiting for God to tell him when to deliver the people. Around 20 years later, though, it enters into Moses' heart to finally take action. And that's where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So verse 11 says, Now it came to pass, Exodus 2, It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So when it says it came to pass, it says this is how it went down. It says in those days, and the word there, those days, refers not to the time of verse 10 where it says that he became Pharaoh's son, but it refers to the greater context of Exodus. So it mentions here specifically what time in that time it was, when Moses was grown. Now, interestingly, that is not the same phrase as come of age in Hebrews eleven twenty four. So any way it shakes out, even if I'm wrong on the timing, any way it shakes out, there is a passage of time between the event where he rejects being Pharaoh's daughter's son and he chooses to go and visit his brethren, okay? There's a passage of time between those two events because according to Acts seven twenty three, Moses was 40 years old at this moment right here. Now, it says that he went out unto his brethren and he looked on their burdens. This word went is the same word in verse 1 of chapter 2 where it says that the Amram, Moses' father, 
He went unto his wife and they had a son. He defied Pharaoh's edict as Hebrews eleven twenty three says. It was a purposeful, intentional action. He'd left behind the royal courts, but now he wanted to see how badly his people really happened, had it. And when he comes out, he finds something horrible happening. It says he spied an Egyptian smiting. That's a really bad translation. It means beating. And the idea is he's going to beat him to death. A Hebrew, one of his brethren. This was something he had never had an up close and personal experience with until this point. Acts 7.24, you can look it up, it describes what he sees as he saw one of his brethren suffering wrong. That's a very polite way in the Greek of saying it was an unjust or wicked action. He came upon a murder taking place. Now, prior to this, Moses had probably seen his people driven hard. This was a brutal beating, a great injustice, and it grabbed his heart in such a way that he had to do something. Now that it was one of his brethren, those that God, he believed, created him to rescue, it inflamed that indignation in his heart even more. This was his moment to act, to become their deliverer, and Moses acts, verse 12. And he looked this way, and he looked that way, and when he saw there was no man, nobody was watching, he slew the Egyptian and then he hid him or buried him in the sand. Now, Moses comes upon an injustice, but Moses decides to take justice into his own hands. It's been said that God's calling involves the right person, the right place, and the right time. And that is so true. Get any of those three wrong and you're going to be off. Moses was the right man, but this wasn't the right time or place in his life. He thought he was ready to lead this people, but his actions proved that he was nowhere close to leading anyone because the answer to a problem is not murder. I had an interesting conversation with a young man yesterday and he was asking me some questions about some things and I had a question about whether this was right or wrong and I said, well, it's wrong. You, you can't decide to say this is my life and God is pleased and I'm that for Jesus. And I, you know, you can't be a murderer for Jesus. You can't be a bank robber for Jesus, you know? You know, it's wonderful if you want to leave scripture verses on the bank door after you leave, but that's, you can't do that and God would never ask you to do that. He would never call you to that life, okay? So, In the same way, even though Moses had a call upon his life, God did not call him to murder the Egyptian. And Moses knew that because he doesn't look up. He looks left and he looks right. No one's looking. I'll kill the man. I'll bury him. End of story. Moses looked left and right, but he forgot to look up. See, God didn't tell him to do this. I know that because I doubt God would have had him secretly murder the Egyptian. Not when there was a legal system that could have dealt with this violent man the right way. Moses knew it wasn't right because he covered up his murder by burying the man rather than report that he'd solved an injustice. He knew if someone found out, he would be in big trouble. Now, Moses succeeds for all his purposes. He goes back home for the day and he thinks to himself, that felt pretty good. I saved my people. The deliverance is on. And so... The next day, verse 13, and when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, why do you smite your fellow? And he said to him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Or do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Moses goes out a second time. He went, and it's that same word, with intent and purpose. And I imagine there's probably a bit of a superhero complex here. The deliverance has begun. They're going to write a miniseries about me someday, and they did. But they're going to write a miniseries about this someday. What good deed will I do to save my people today? But the word behold here is meant to jolt us. I always say the word behold is check this out. It means to pay attention. And when he went out the second time, pay attention, something happened he didn't expect. He saw two men of the Hebrews 
fighting. They're going to kill each other. One of them's going to die in this fight. And he goes to him, he says, who, to him who did the wrong, why do you smite your fellow? This day didn't turn out like he planned at all. He finds the exact same scenarios yesterday, except it's his own people beating each other this time. And like I said, Acts 7.25 shows Moses' mindset when he intervened. He thought everybody knew he was the man. His position, his freedom, his education, he felt it was obvious to everyone that God had raised him up to be their deliverer and by default then, their leader. Whereas he murdered the Egyptian as an enemy, he seeks to lead his own people to correct their wrong behavior and stop fighting. But the response is completely opposite of what he expected. One dude looks at him and says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? They didn't look at his freedom and his education and, and all that. And you know what? Oh, but it's got to be God. They didn't look at it as God. They resented it. They looked at him and who do you think you are? Because oh, you're free. You can tell us what to do. You've had a better education than us. You can tell us what to do. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Stephen, in Acts 7, the reason he brings up this story is because he's talking about how Israel repeatedly rejected the people that God sent them. You know, as a whole, at this point in time, when Moses is trying to be the deliverer, they weren't really much different than the Egyptians, except for being enslaved. It would take another 40 years of suffering for them to finally be broken and to cry out to God. Moses was the right man, but it wasn't right time for him. But it also wasn't the right time for his people. His people weren't ready for him yet. And so he asked the question, who do you think you are? And I imagine Moses thinking, I know who I am. I'm the one God called. But then the guy ups the ante and he goes, oh, well, then do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? That's how you lead? Is that you lead by fear? See, this shows us that Moses was equally unready to lead as they were unready to be led. God had to deal with his pride still. Don't they know I'm the deliverer? No, Moses, they don't. <laughs> Moses had to learn to be a servant leader. Murder is not the way you deal with church problems, you know? I wanted to sometimes. I had a pastor, I heard him say once, he said, you know, sometimes I just want to shoot him and let God figure it out. That's never the answer. Ultimately, Moses had to learn to submit to God, that God was Israel's deliverer and that his job was to be God's instrument to point them to the Lord. And I always tell people, I say, my job as a, a leader in a church is I want to work myself out of a job. Nobody else needs me anymore. I want people to grow and become mature. That's the job of a leader, to point the way to the Lord. When this guy brings up the murder, Moses feared. See, he thought he'd covered up the murder perfectly. Whether someone else saw, maybe he didn't look one direction and someone else saw. Or maybe the person he saved spread the news. Either way, word of his actions had indeed spread. And the possible consequences for those actions terrified Moses. He was afraid. For he said, surely this thing is known. It's going to spread. You might be saying, hey, well, I'm here in Hebrews 11, and if you read one more verse, there's a contradiction there. Hebrews 11:27, it says that by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Contradiction, Will? No, it's not a contradiction, because that verse doesn't refer to this event. That verse refers to Moses' final encounter with the next pharaoh. Remember when he came to the next pharaoh and he announced the 10th plague? the firstborn. You know what Pharaoh said to him? He said, you'll never see my face again. The day you do is the day you die. That's pretty heavy. Moses is probably thinking, I hope we don't go to the same, you know, Egyptian Walmart that day. <laughs> you know, I, that, that's not going to end well, you know, that's going to be awkward because either he's got to keep his word or whatever. There could have been many reasons for him to be afraid, but Moses wasn't afraid at all. The Bible says that he was angry. He was heartbroken that this hard-hearted, stubborn man was willing to watch all of his, the firstborn in the land die just for his pride. And by faith, Moses turned his back on that, and he led the people out. 
So that is not a contradiction. It refers to a different encounter that Moses had with a different, entirely a different Pharaoh. Verse 15, word did indeed spread. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses' fears finally come true. News of his murder finally reaches Pharaoh, and the king orders him to be arrested and executed. And so Moses, it says, fled from the face of Pharaoh. He was not in the presence of Pharaoh, but in the presence of Egypt. He left Egypt. We know that because it says that he went to Midian. Now, hearing that this deed was being spoken about by other people, Moses was most likely ready for a hasty departure. And living away from the palace probably helped Moses get out of the country. We know that the the people where they suffered is not where Pharaoh's palace was. It was nowhere near there. They didn't like being around slaves. But the question is, is where does a fugitive go when you're a member of the royal family? You know, I mean, you're kind of easily recognizable. How do you keep that hidden? And where do you go? Well, you know where you go? You go as far away as possible. And Moses went all the way to the land, the Bible says, of Midian. Now, the Midianites were nomadic tribes who lived, uh, who dwelt in what we would call modern-day Saudi Arabia, some of the United Arab Emirates, that Yemen and those places down in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula there in the Middle East. But some of them had migrated to the southeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. That would be, if you look at your map, you've got, I'm going to do this backwards, but you've got, you know, Saudi Arabia here, and then you've got the Gulf of Aqaba, then the Sinai Peninsula, then the Red Sea, or the Gulf of Suez these days, and then you have Egypt, okay? So... He, many of these Midianites migrated over the Gulf of Aquaba into the Sinai Peninsula in the southeastern part of that region. These were shepherds for the most part, so many ancient wells for their flocks have been discovered in this region. And it's at one of these wells that Moses finally stops running. Now, you can add up the miles. I I didn't add them up, but I've done it in the past. That's, That's a long trip. That's a long way to go. It tells you just how frightened he was. Moses' primary concern up to that point when he sits down at the well was escaping execution, getting as far away from Egyptian influence as possible. I don't know if he stopped at other places. I don't know if he joined caravans. We have no clue. But the language implies is that he finally thinks he's far enough away that he can stop running, that he's done running. Now, if that's the case, I would imagine this afforded him the first chance to really soak in what had happened to him. I imagine the reality that his old life was gone started to set in. You're never going to be rich again, Moses. You're never going to live a posh life. You're never, never going to have that life again. That life is gone. You are a fugitive. I also imagine that that thought was soon followed by doubt and confusion. He'd been convinced his position in Egypt was evidence that God chose him to deliver his people from slavery. But that was all gone now. And so that dream is gone too. How on earth am I going to deliver people? And now I'm, I'm, here, I'm running you know, for my life. I have nothing. I have no one. I'm, I'm sitting here at a well in the middle of nowhere. And I imagine he probably wondered, if, had I heard God wrong? God, what is the purpose of my life? And you know, Moses won't return to this plan for his life for 40 years. 40 years till chap- the events of chapter 3. And I don't know if Moses realized how proud he was to think he'd figured out all the reasons why God chose him, or if he thought he failed and God had rejected him because of committing murder. I don't know any of that. But I do know this. The man that meets God at that burning bush is a way different man than the one who murdered that Egyptian. Way different. Something happened in those 40 years. And let me tell you this. Moses jumping the gun was not part of God's plan. Moses murdering the Egyptian was not part of God's plan. But Moses being broken was. His time here in the desert, his education here being broken, was part of God's plan. Moses, like anyone God calls to lead, had to be broken. 
To be a good leader in a job of this magnitude, Moses had to be shattered. Absolutely shattered. And maybe you've had a past failure. Or maybe you've misjudged God's timing and you jumped the gun in your pride. Maybe you weren't ready yet and you had a moral failure. Listen, none of that negates God's call in your life. None of that negates God's plan for your life. It simply means this. You need to be broken still. And you're in the process right now of being broken so that when the time is right, you will be ready. I want to encourage you tonight, if this is you, you think, well, that's what I did. I murdered the Egyptian. Not literally, but, you know, I did that. I jumped the gun. I, you know, if you did, I I need to report you. But the idea of just jumping the gun and having an area where you failed, you totally blew it. If that's you, listen. Don't let the enemy condemn you. Take it to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you. And then let him have his way. Let him crush your pride, even though it's painful. Because what will emerge from that process is a man or a woman who can move in God's omnipotent power and succeed at the task that he sets before you. You know, I I tell people at times, they say, I feel God's got a call in my life. And I say, really? They say, okay, well, you ready to be broken? What do you mean? Well, God can't use a man or a woman he hasn't broken. He doesn't. You look through it, the entire scripture, he never uses a man he hasn't broken. He never uses a woman he hasn't broken. You have to be shattered. All the pride, all of all those things that the reasons you think that you could do his work, he has to totally break you of it. <laughs> so that when you come to him, you go, God, I've got nothing. All I've got is myself. And the Lord says, good, I can fill that. I can fill that. See, I chose you. I didn't choose you because of anything in you. I chose you because I just, that's what I want to do. I love you and you're my guy. You're my gal. But I need to fill you. You can't be filled with you anymore. I need to fill you. Well, while he's there at the well, something interesting happens. Verse 16, God isn't through with him. It says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now, the Midianites did not have a fixed deity they worshipped. When you look at them, they've got all sorts of pagan gods they worshipped. But by all appearances, this man, as we get to know him, seems to be someone who worshipped the one true God. Now, we know that he was a descendant of Abraham through Keturah. So it's not unlikely that he would know about Yahweh or Jehovah, the one true God. But However it was that he came about to that, he seems to be a follower of God Almighty. And so we'll learn more about him as time goes by. But it mentions here that this guy had seven daughters. No mention of sons. That's a lot of estrogen. In one tent. Well, they came and they drew water. And it says they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So here we meet this guy's seven daughters. And again, it's possible this was their role in the family business, but it's more likely he either didn't have any sons or he didn't have sons that were old enough to oversee it. Either way, at this time, didn't have any sons. We know later he has a son. Get to that later on in in the law. But either way, their presence among men made them vulnerable to mistreatment. So they get there, they begin to pull the water out of the well, put it in troughs for their animals to feed. Well, they do that, and a bunch of these shepherds come by, and, and look, verse 17 says, and the shepherds came and drove them away. He said, why would they do that? What a mean, mean people. Listen, we think of shepherds in a really happy, nice way, okay? Like, we think of shepherds, you think, oh, they take care of animals, they're animal lovers. They must be the nicest people in the world. They love animals. Shepherds were like the equivalent of the 1920 sailor. You didn't let your daughter around them. That's who they, I'm serious, that's who they were. Shepherds were considered one of the lowliest reputations that you could have in that time period. They were considered scoundrels. They couldn't get any other type of work. They were not considered to be good people. That's why the whole idea that God picks the group he's going to announce the birth of Christ to, shepherds, is quite comical. They weren't even reputable. 
If you were going to pick someone to be your announcement people, you wouldn't have picked shepherds. Yeah, oh, we found the Messiah. We found him. You found the Messiah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like last week. Last week you were out there and you said you saw three sons up there. I don't believe anything you say, man. That's how it was. So the shepherds, this is not reputable people. So these guys come up and, and they were notably very lazy. These guys come up and they notice, man, we got all these troughs full of water. We don't have to do a thing. We chase off these ladies and we can feed our flocks and they can go do the work again. Listen, I wish that was not the case in how people viewed women, how men viewed women and how they treated women. That's how it was back then. If you're a woman, you got, you got, cob- <laughs> you got stomped. That's just how people treated you. They treated you as lesser and they didn't care about you. You know, that's why when people talk about Christianity putting women down because we talk about submission, we talk about roles and responsibilities because the Bible talks about those things or why we don't have women pastors because the Bible says you can't, you don't. It's not putting women down. Listen, Christianity elevated the place of a woman and it has done so everywhere it goes. You can't have any type of a structure without having roles and responsibilities. I have found it interesting that God tells a husband to do the thing that's hardest for him. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. You get a young couple in front of you, and we want to get married. All right, okay. All right, young man, you know, you want to get married. Do you understand what marriage is about? Oh, yes, I love her, and she's wonderful. No, 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 you're ready to die. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to give up all your hopes and dreams so that you can serve and minister to your wife and your children? All the things you want to do so you can serve and minister to them. That's what it means to be a man. That goes counter to how we are. We don't die. We survive. You know, we don't sacrifice. We do our own thing. We climb mountains. In the same token, God gave women a role that was hard to do. Women, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. I have found women to be way more effective at managing all the affairs that go on in the, in, in the family. I am not necessarily the best person at those things. You know, Bevel comes to me and she goes, she goes sweetie, you know, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Micah has, you know, or one of the kids has no jeans anymore, no, no long pants. I'm like, oh, I it's Florida, wear shorts. I, I just don't even think about these things. She's always got tabs on all those things. I have found that many times, this, God didn't call men because we're more capable. He called us because it's harder to do. We have to trust him for it. To be a leader. To not be lazy. In the same way God calls you ladies to do something that's not, not easy to do. To trust somebody else. To follow someone else's lead. To say, I'm going to yoke in with this guy, this knucklehead, and, and I'm gonna, we're going to be in this for better or for worse, whatever. I'm going to trust the Lord. He's going to work on the knucklehead. That's the truth, though. It's not easy for you to do. That's what I found. And as a result, when we trust the Lord, we do things his way, we both get sanctified. We both become more like he wants us to be. We grow in the areas that are our struggles. And we find order in the home. We find things the way they're supposed to be. Moses was given a great task, but didn't wait for the Lord's timing. It would be another 40 years before God would use Moses. This is because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God only uses people whose pride has been broken. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.